You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. One of the things that happens with Europe, and I, I don't want to say this is a slur, but I think it's sometimes a product of ignorance, is that the Asian fan is very often patronised. Premier League has been so dominant for all the efforts of, of, of leagues like La Liga. It's very difficult to compete with that because, quite frankly, they got there first. They did it really well in a broadcast sense. And, of course, beyond that, they also had the clout of the clubs who were independently pushing themselves in the marketplace as well. You will get somebody in Malaysia, Singapore, Jakarta, wherever it is, writing a really well-reasoned, really articulate sort of response to something you've said or asking you a question. But also, you'll get somebody from Cambodia, Laos, who doesn't maybe have the English English skills, but they will use what they've got. They'll just say hi, or they'll say, I love Man United, or they'll just use emojis or what have you. And I think as much as anything else, I love that, because that means that people are there watching and engaging. Hi there. Now, if you live in Asia and you follow the Premier League, then John Dykes will be a familiar face. He hosts coverage of the English top flight for Fox Sport Asia out in Singapore. John is English, but he spent the majority of his broadcasting career in Southeast Asia. Therefore, he's well positioned to discuss how interest in the Premier League has grown in the past few decades, analyse which leagues are best placed to compete, and also challenge some of the myths about football fans in this part of the world. Check out my show notes for links to John and Fox Sport Asia, Also, feel free to contact me if you have any questions about my consultancy, this podcast, or you just want to say hi. Anyway, let's get back to the task in hand, covering the Premier League in Asia with this man. Hi, I'm John Dykes, and I host a three times a week Premier League-based chat show on Fox Sports Asia, uh, which uh, covers uh, a large part of Asia, in particular Southeast Asia. Uh, I come to it having worked for seven years as the lead anchor on the Premier League's global content service. And prior to that, I was based in Asia with ESPN Star Sports around about uh, 15 to 20 years now of primarily broadcasting either Premier League match coverage or, as I'm now doing, debates and uh, content around it. So tell us about your show. You don't use footage, but you analyse the game, talk about social media, talk to pundits around the world... Yeah, uh, kind of. Um, we we aren't a, a Premier League broadcast partner at the moment um, in the territories we go to. But what we do is um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, certainly in terms of the traditional TV uh, and on our streaming service, we make a 30-minute show in which I do pretty much the things you said, but also... Um, we, we can we can assume knowledge um, in terms of we don't necessarily feel that we need to show clips or highlights or anything like that. Where we are is we're picking up on the major the major talking points, and um, more crucially, we're trying to engage the audience in a way that um, we don't feel that they have been fully engaged um, in Asia. And the beauty of what we're doing is that it's not just something that goes out on the TV and and, and we lecture. Uh, away at people and and I give my opinion and uh, my guests do the same. What we try and do is stimulate a debate. And because we also put this out via uh, Facebook Live, so we we basically live stream it on Facebook, we take real-time comments um, and answer questions as they come in during the show. We try and keep it as vibrant and organic as possible. And then the other thing that we look to do with it is, of course, it's not just um, sort of destination three times a week viewing. The whole point is that we're building up a community um, via the digital platform as well as the TV show, which means that really we just keep it going in 24-7. So even at the weekends, um, 
And what's really pleased me recently is I've started doing little sort of Facebook hangouts and social media stuff at the weekends, whereby we're sitting here watching this game. And of course, you're watching it on one screen, but you're communicating with me on another. And we're having a little chat about that thing we said on Friday that was going to happen. And it looks like it is happening uh, in this game. Or, you know, that thing that we worried might happen has happened. So it's, 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 it's a really... Um, it's a fluid situation, and that's what I think we're working towards, particularly given the changing nature of the way people consume uh, their sport these days. The knowledge of the Asian fans, you said you assume knowledge, that you assume they're watching. I mean, it's an obvious question, I suppose, but just how passionate are they? In, in, in Europe, in England, we presume they are watching every game, consuming everything. There's blanket coverage. Is, is that the way it is? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that happens with Europe, and I, I don't want to say this is a slur, but I think it's sometimes a product of ignorance, is the Asian fan is very often patronized and characterized in one of two ways. One of them would be the uh, hysterical idol worshipper who, who mobs them uh, when they get off the plane come over here on their preseason or tours. Uh, and the other is the sort of the shirt buying thing. Now, as I'm sure you're fully aware, of course, shirt sales aren't all they're cracked up to be. Shirt, shirt sales is a sort of metaphor, isn't it, for for saying, OK, we've bought this player and that will that will increase our commercial um, opportunities in a certain region. Um, but I think what that's overlooking is the fact that I was fortunate during my time with ESPN Star, especially we used to do, I suppose, a very early forerunner to this show. We did a Tuesday night show called Football Focus, which was an, an hour long. Um, because of the different territories we went to, we were in various stages of rights ownership. We decided to, to bin the rights, uh, bin the footage all together and, and just do a panel show. And that's where we had me plus as many as four guests just debating. And what we found then is good, good old email, which is what we used back then. We had tons of feedback coming in and it also taught me that there was a very uh, football literate, articulate, knowledgeable, passionate audience out there that perhaps wasn't particularly well catered to. Um, I think for one, whatever reason, by their either incumbent uh, Premier League rights holder, broadcaster, whatever it may be. So um, in, in a way, there's, there's, there's an opportunity. And all that's happened since then is I then went and worked on the Premier League's global feed. But I went along there very much armed with the knowledge that we weren't just squirting this broadcast out to some faceless audience. I actually knew who we were going to and I knew how much they, they, they were aware of football and understood it, which meant that I'd like to hope it meant that I, I was able to bring a broadcast to them that, that, that they deserved. And then having come back to Asia, um, we've very much built upon that, as I said, by at the moment not being a, a broadcast rights holder, but, but not letting that get in our way. Because, as I said, in these multi-screen days, sure, you're going to watch the, watch the game on one screen, but we would like to think that you'll come to us um, for, for your debate, for your community, um, for, for for everything else, even even fantasy gaming, because you know we're all doing that as well these days. We're not long into the Premier League season. Um, teams have been on tour, and you've got the Singapore tournament. Uh, teams have been coming to Asia very seriously for ten years or so. Has that had an effect? You know, after a, after an Arsenal or a Man U come to Asia, Singapore in particular for the for the tournament that's that's yeah. held there, is there obvious knock on effect and increased interest? It's an interesting point you make that one. Um, I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm no youngster. I, I was, I, I went to live in Hong Kong as a teenager late, in my late teens in the early 1980s, and I remember 
back in those days, you would you would even then you would get the occasional visit by by a club. Uh, and I remember going down to the um, to Sokam Po in Hong Kong and uh, down the, um, the the stadium there and watching Liverpool, who arrived for I think it was a postseason one. And you know, back in those days, it really was a jolly up for for, for the guys. And they turned up and played against the team, and we all rocked up there thinking great and that's this remember this is like you know early 80s 82 83 or maybe 83 i think it was so you're talking a legendary team well liverpool showed up and um they played a team that featured uh, mark lawrenson playing up front uh not an awful lot of, of superstars in the team and okay look it was their prerogative and and, and there were enough stars knocking around for it to be really interesting but Fast forward to when I was fortunate enough to be involved when I worked with the Premier League, either directly or indirectly, in, in the Asian trophies they used to do. And one of the things that, that I used to really enjoy about those was that, unlike uh, some of the tours made by uh, independent clubs who came out to satisfy commercial um, opportunities, uh, commitments, what have you, um, the, the Premier League would always... In- insist that there would be a lot that goes on around it so um, a week or two maybe even more than that beforehand there would be an advanced party of coaches that come out that would start running uh, premier skills coaching courses uh, for, for, for coaches for players for referees for whatever might suit the market and so you'd have this um, lovely interaction and engagement with the community going on and what we found was the really big clubs now they autonomously have their own asian marketing commercial teams in place anyway but some of the other clubs that were on the up, if you will, and I, I, I look at maybe Spurs when they were beginning to really saw their way into the, 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 the big boys sort of market in terms of the commercial sphere, they will have found that they suddenly had much more engagement with their, with their Asian fans. And we discovered that they were delighted with what was going on on the ground. They were riding on the coattails, if you will, of this great big Premier League juggernaut. And of course, now they've subsequently gone on to, to, to develop things themselves. Some of the other clubs were just lucky and happy to be there. Those that sort of yo-yo up and down between the championship in the Premier League. I, I think there's a, a massive difference between what used to happen back in, say, the 90s and early 90s in Hong Kong, um, maybe Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Singapore, where you, you, you would find people accusing the clubs of just coming and taking from the marketplace, show up, play a half-hearted game, not put their stars on the pitch, and basically milk it for all it's worth. I think that, that, that those days are past. And I think that even when we saw the ICC recently here in Singapore, you saw an awful lot of attempts at community engagement from the clubs. And let's not forget Arsenal in particular, with a brand new coach, Unai Emery, just itching to work with his players. Probably, I would imagine, not really that keen to let them go out and be interviewed or even go out and go to shopping malls or wherever it may be. But from what I could see, they, they, they made a pretty good fist of, of getting out and about and engaging with the fans. The fans seemed happy enough, as far as I could see, with what they were getting. And, and that's the way it should be, I think. Yeah, I came out with Arsenal. I led Arsenal's content strategy for places like Vietnam and Indonesia and Japan and China. And I found that always there was enthusiasm everywhere. Do you find different countries go for different clubs or different leagues even? You know, the, it, we're talking about the Premier League here, but is the Italian league strong in certain countries as opposed to other countries, for example? Well, to an extent, I think it comes down to, 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 to marketing and, and, and also broadcast um, rights um, reach. Um, the Premier League 
famously, of course, struggled a little bit with China, didn't they? There were just all sorts of complications. And as a result, the Bundesliga suddenly got in there and, and, and got quite a good share of, of, of the market. I think it was the NBA that really dominated, to be totally honest. But now if you look at the way the Premier League are going about things, that's that's redressed, I think, straight away. Um, if, you're, if you're talking India, for instance, um, one thing that you can infuriate me, because I worked for a broadcaster that also showed cricket, and occasionally there would be this kind of, um, well, do we show the live uh, European football match, the, the you know, a club match, or do we show a six-hour cut-down of today at the Test match featuring you know, India and Bangladesh, whatever it was. And sometimes what would happen is that the broadcaster would go, well, yeah, we can make more ad revenue from the cricket, so we'll do that. And what I was aware of was the howls of, you know, fury and indignation coming out of not just the traditional Indian heartlands of football, you know, Goa and, 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 and of course, you know, down in, 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 in those parts where they really play a lot. Uh, but uh, East Bengal, it, it would be from uh, Mumbai and it would be from Delhi and it would be from places that traditionally back then weren't seen as, as, as places where there were football fans. So I, I knew straight away that there were fans out there. And, and to answer your question long-windedly, yeah, um, there would be uh, a legacy of Portuguese, Spanish and Italian football, certainly in India, being more popular than the English. And who knows, there might have been a little bit of sort of, you know, uh, anyone but the but, but the British, the sort of post-colonial sort of thing going on there. But elsewhere around around Asia, I think it comes and goes. Indonesia had, of course, its little primavera generation players, didn't it? And and there was that, that those connections with Italy. So you'll find pockets of Italian football being enjoyed over there. Um, but by and large, I, I think Premier League, and of course I've been a part of that story for so long and watched it firsthand, the Premier League has been so dominant. Um, kickoff times, etc., have meant that for all the efforts of, of, of leagues like La Liga, it's very difficult to compete with that because, quite frankly, they got there first. They did it really well in a broadcast sense. And, of course, beyond that, they also had the clout of the clubs who were independently pushing themselves in the marketplace as well. And I think it was very hard for anybody to compete with that. Yeah, is the Premier League different as well? Because, obviously, it, it's it's got those deeper roots, as you say. Also... It's had more money, it's had more stars, and so it's got that natural advantage and then it built upon it. But, but yeah. the nature of English football, because the crowds are roaring you on, of course all the stadiums are full as well, so the atmosphere is good, but the crowds are roaring you on and the pace of the game is crucial in appealing to an overseas market like Asia. Yeah, it's 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 a very visceral product, isn't it? And I think the point you make about the the, the crowds and the and the sound, it's 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 very much a televised product as well. I mean, when I first got to Hong Kong, we would have uh, live football through the British Forces Broadcasting Service, and then once a week you'd have a like a, a roundup or a big match or something like that. And then slowly you got more and more games coming. It took a while, and then there was a great flurry. I mean, before Italia '90 came along and they put all those new stadia up, uh, of course you had that wonderful spell through the '80s when Italian football was so vibrant and so exciting. And also, what was happening, if I remember them rightly, there was um, a really good uh, weekly um, show put together, and the broadcast content was really well done. Um, and then suddenly the rights changed, and I think Rai took over or someone like that. And then they were playing in these great big cavernous stadia. Uh, it wasn't the atmosphere wasn't as good, and I think suddenly the interest fell away because going from the glory days of the, you know Van Bastens and Rijkaard's and Hullets, suddenly things just just dipped a little bit, didn't they? So I think TV has a huge part to play in it in terms of if it's an appealing product, i.e. if it's exciting, stimulating, slick, well-packaged, then that makes an awful difference. The other thing as well, I think you've got to remember, of course, is um, that the, the Premier League um, is... 
it has these, these these roots. It's also quite easy to understand. But also there's a club affiliation. I think the other thing in Asia is you get people following players, don't you? So the, you can have somebody who says, I'm a, I'm a Man United fan, but I'm also a Sergio Aguero fan. It, it's not unthinkable that that could happen. Uh, but more likely, you'll have a, an English club and maybe you'll be a Messi fan. So, so in a way, I think that the, the, the league, the, the Premier League, is still a, has, has maintained its attractiveness. Whereas people will say, well, I'll watch that league because I want to see this player play. Yeah, I mean, the, people are talking a lot about Cristiano Ronaldo and whether he's, he's going to take his fans from Real Madrid to Juventus. I mean, let's talk about a Premier League example, a player who's moved between big clubs. Alexis Sanchez, for example, moving from Arsenal to Manchester United. Do you sense that Asian fans follow the player and move clubs as well. You talked about them being a, cl- a club fan and a player fan, but when the player moves, does the does the fan move with the club? Because that's the sense we have over here. But interesting to see your point of view. No, I don't think so. No, mm. no. I think I think the 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 club uh, the club affiliation in Premier League terms is so much stronger uh, in Asia uh, that won't happen. However, were it a player, I think moving certainly from one continental European league to another, and perhaps even within that league. Uh, yeah, I could quite easily see some shifting uh, from being a fan of one club to a fan of another. But I think with the Premier League, it's been here long enough, and the, the, the allegiance is such. You see, look at Torres, for instance. You know, Torres, by doing what he did and going where he went, he had a lot of Asian fans, like fans in Britain, um, on, on Merseyside, wishing him ill. And when things didn't work out for him down at Chelsea, there was a lot of celebration here as they would have been there. Now, I hate that sort of thing on a personal level, but you understand it. It's that so-called tribal uh, football element. Uh, but no, it's it's as passionate here. And and that's the point I'm trying to make. There, there is a, And that's what we're finding out on my show. There, there is... A, the world's become smaller, as you know. So nowadays, thanks to, 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 to the internet, to social media, um, people are, are far more knowledgeable, but at the same time, they're far more swayed by what people are saying in their, you know, little fan groups, their bulletin boards, their pages, their forums, whatever it may be. And I'm particularly enjoying getting into that space and saying, whoa, 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 don't, don't just go along with this because it's gone viral on social. Don't just believe this because this journalist has said this is going to happen. And that's one thing that I find fascinating because people here are pretty much as across what's happening as they would be where, where, where you are. Yeah, and that's, that's the insight, isn't it? I mean, a, a, an online newspaper can be read as easily as... In London, as in, as in Jakarta or Tokyo or wherever ever it may be. But one thing I want to talk about: you say the world's got smaller. From a broadcast level and a show like yours, Skype seems to be a massive tool that maybe three or four years ago, five years ago, broadcasters would have been a bit, a little bit sniffy about the quality of the feed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that seems to have changed, and now it's in, it's in, it's in the BBC nine o'clock news. They'll use a Skype feed of a of an expert. You're using Skype feeds as well. I saw one of Mark Schwartzer and a few others. Um, that seems to be a, a real tool now. Well, let, let's not let's not um, uh, let's not disguise the fact that it's also cheap, <laughs> free. <in fact. laughs> okay, um, you know. I mean, the, the, the side to that that I think is, is worth pointing out is that ever since uh, everybody was encouraged to come a broadcaster themselves, you know, we're all journalists now, aren't we? We're all taxi drivers. We're all hotel keepers. Uh, we're all, uh, you know, we're all encouraged that we can do this. Ever since that became a thing, I think broadcasters' acceptance of what previously would have been considered not broadcast quality has, has softened. Um, and I think now we, we recognize that the, the viewer will accept, oh, that's a Skype. You know, it's, it, we don't expect it to be crystal clear. We think there might be a little bit of a delay 
there might be a bit of blurring. Now, there was a time, of course, when you, you couldn't put something out on a, on a so-called reputable channel like that. So in a way, it works two ways. It makes people feel, yeah, okay, there's an immediacy to this. That, that is for that person. Because remember, again, if you, if you dress someone up, put makeup on them, put them in a suit, put them in a fancy TV studio, that, that's all very classy, but they, they don't seem that approachable. Whereas when you've got somebody who's clearly in, 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 in their living room and they've got their T-shirt on and, and you go, well, that's, that is that person. And, and you know, they've just got out of bed or they've just had their lunch or whatever it may be and we're talking to them. And there's an immediacy to that. The only problem, and this is something that, that I've always had to try and explain to, to uh, my producers and my colleagues around uh, Singapore and around the rest of Asia, is that unfortunately... They don't realize this, but uh, broadband speeds, particularly in the UK, aren't really quite as good as we're used to out here. So, yeah. so one of the big problems is that we're talking to a, a rather famous former player. And my, my producer's going, well, there must be something wrong. And I go, no, I'm afraid that you've got far faster connection here than they do uh, and that's the one thing that really is, is, is holding us up at times because we've had a few broadcasts where we've had to say well even by our standards you know our tolerance standards we can't really accept that as quality uh, and, and that's really quite annoying sometimes and there's also increased use of journalists um it used to be yeah. all about coaches and you have to have played the game the importance of playing the game you need to have that authority and yet journalists perhaps it's because everyone's a broadcaster perhaps it's because there's more shows but you you use a lot of journalists um the guardian weekly podcast really had an impact um journalists seems to have gained authority as a as a source for shows like yours to tell a story yeah there are also two sides to that just like i said you know (laughs) yeah exactly they're they're cheaper uh they also have changed their role they they need they need i'm not saying they need the work they need the exposure because as a journalist now you don't hide behind a byline you have to have the twitter account you have to have the social media account you have to pull in big numbers you have to have reach and you have to appear on as many uh podcasts broadcasts uh, as you possibly can because it gives you a competitive edge. Now, the, the reason I say that is that everybody's an analyst now. There'll be a guy sitting um, behind his laptop in Bangalore who do, do as detailed a scouting report from there as perhaps you might get from anybody outside of a football club itself. So there are some really switched on people with access to a lot of data um, and they know their football. So the journalist then has to work on their uh, exclusivity. And what I try to pull out of the journalist is they were in the press conference because Premier League football is still quite hard uh, to, to get through to people, to players, to managers. You know, unlike, say, American sport, where there's wonderful access uh, if you're a rights holder, even if you're a rights holder when it comes to the Premier League. Uh, and you'll know this from having worked with a club. You know, it, it's, it's tough. You know, agents make it hard. Um, club press officers make it hard. It, it's not that easy to get there. So if I have got a journalist who was at that press conference when Mourinho said that thing, you might even have asked him the question that made him angry. Uh, that is fabulous. So I try and draw that out, the journalist, as much as I possibly can. And I noticed the tweets that you take, almost all Asian people, is that, is that because you're asking them to come in directly to you or directly to the show? And the show only, or of course, goes out in Asia. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, uh, I, because of my uh, legacy, having worked on on a global channel, uh, you will find people because we're because the show is available on Facebook, for instance, and um, because we don't run content that would be geo-blocked, that would be right sensitive. I, I do have people from Africa. I do have people from uh, all over the world popping up and, and and watching it and commenting. But you know, because we we are 
an Asian broadcaster, and because primarily we're looking to pitch this to the Asian market, yeah, we 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 we're getting comments in. And the lovely thing about it is that um, when we put it out on Facebook, it's not obviously it's it's just one of the ways that we're broadcasting it. Clearly, we have our traditional streaming method as well as as, as you know our cable satellite delivery, but. What I like about it is I've got an instant sense of where people are from. Now, you will get somebody in um, Malaysia, Singapore, um, Jakarta, wherever it is, writing a really well-reasoned, really articulate sort of response to something you've said or asking you a question. But also, you'll get somebody from Cambodia, Laos, who doesn't maybe have the English English skills, but they will use what they've got. They'll just say hi, or they'll say, I love Man United, or they'll just use emojis or what have you. And I think as much as anything else, I love that, because that means that people are there watching and engaging. And so what I try to do with the show where possible is get as many visuals on screen. So even if somebody might not quite follow what I'm saying, I'll put a lower third graphic up with, with the statement. You know, the, the topic, right, uh, who's to blame at Manchester United? I'll try and get that out there. Um, I'll get newspaper headlines up. I'll get some overlay footage of players training. I'll get, you know what I mean? I, I, I think we don't want language to be a barrier. Um, you know, it would be fantastic if we could simultaneously translate this and get it out to even more people in different languages. But we do version what we do uh, after the event where possible. Uh, but but I'm, I'm loving the fact that there clearly are people, again, it goes back to my point. I knew when we set this up that there was a, a, a very thirsty uh, audience out there just really wanting as much football debate as they could possibly get. And what about the storylines? Because one thing I always found at Arsenal, it was difficult for me to arsenalize every story for the Chinese market or the Vietnamese market or et cetera, et cetera. And there was a big debate within clubs whether you need a local reporter from that nationality at the club in, in England or uh, an agency or a team of reporters on the ground in the country it, itself. So, you know, that it's all the same issue of making storylines relevant to the particular market. So what other tenants do you use? Ideas do you use? Well, I mean, I suppose one of the good things about not working right now in a sort of a official rights holder capacity and certainly not working for the Premier League itself is that I have a degree of editorial independence. Um, and obviously I'm not coming at it from a club angle where you, you talk about arsenalizing something or probably, you know, you've got to be on message, haven't you? And you probably want some kind of commercial agenda and you want to steer clear of the sensitive subjects about when Wenger should stay or go, you know, when that was a thing. So I, I, I'm not really compelled by any that right no if i want to sit here for instance and say well oh, i think that was a bit of a rubbish premier league season because quite frankly 13 of the teams are trying to have relegation right from the start then i can do that now that is just the, the journalist in me now whether or not that would appeal to, to answer your question to people in a certain audience yeah we have to use our judgment but i think the key to it is that the production team with are 95 percent uh, Southeast Asians who have grown up here, who have watched their Premier League football here, who interact with their friends um, all day and all night about it. So in putting the show together, I have a really strong sense uh, of what they're interested in. So, for instance, even if safe standing were to become a, a, a hot topic in, in England, it's not a story I would touch because it doesn't really, it's not something they can relate to because they're, um, as you know, only very, very few people in this part of the world even in their lifetime, once might have the opportunity to 
travel all the way to England to go to Stamford Bridge or, or Anfield or Old Trafford or where it may be. So their Premier League experience comes via the television. And as long as the atmosphere comes through loud and clear, they're not that bothered about the interviews of who's standing or sitting or how much they're paying for their tickets. So obviously, you know, that's one example of, of a storyline that I wouldn't really go near too much because it's just not something that's relevant to them. What I would have to do, though, is I'd have to say, should I get too bogged down in talking about tactics where somebody might learn more about the personality involved? Um, and I think that's sometimes a line we have to draw. But again, we don't want to be too patronizing. We don't want to say, oh, here we are doing a little, you know, puffy little profile of Romelu Lukaku uh, rather than, you know, talking about his, play, his role in the side. So, again, we have to just go out to our audience, bounce stuff off them and see what we think works best and what they're interested in. Which clubs are working hardest out there within the Premier League or outside? That's a very good question because... If you look at the way the Premier League um, evolved right from 92 onwards, it was fascinating to see that, you know, Liverpool went into their decline. Manchester United exponentially sort of exploded. Now, they both had residual support in, in Asia. But one thing I noticed was that, that Liverpool, well, it was like a corner shop mentality, but they, they had a, a rather more local mentality to what they did. So even though they knew they could come out to Asia and they would get fans involved in, in, in going and watching them play, they, they didn't work as hard, I don't think, on the commercial side of things, which is where United really, really smashed it. Um, I think Chelsea came to the party quite early. Uh, Chelsea had some some switched on guys um, who, who came out and made an effort. I think Arsenal have, in recent times, I've been working quite a bit with Arsenal, who've been pushing quite hard at, at what they do. Um, Manchester City uh, are really fascinating. They're, they are doing commercial tie-up after commercial tie-up out here. They've got a very vibrant organisation. Um, but I think Chelsea are ones that have made some substantial efforts. They, they, they tried to get into China. They did a deal with the AFC. Because a lot of the time people say, well, what's, what, how do we crack this? Do we go out there and set up soccer schools? Do we put our name to coaching initiatives? Or do we simply go out there and, and try and you know, sell products and tie up with commercial entities? I, I'm not seeing anyone new on the market, but I would say the big six are the big six when it comes to visibility out here. We, for example, we show uh, Chelsea TV and Spurs TV um, across the Fox network um, because, you know, they're very mindful that, that, that we have a reach and, and it's great that we have a commercial rate relationship with them. We are always looking to uh, offer clubs and we did something with Man City and something with Arsenal recently because even though we might not be the official rights holder or, or, or a commercial partner, with the Premier League in any way, they recognise that, that we have reach and access and perhaps even they can use me to go out and do something for them that works for them in, in a certain uh, marketplace. Uh, and, and we work with them like that. So I think all the clubs are really active right now and I'm fascinated in, in, in what they're doing with social media as well um, because that's something obviously that is, if you look at Indonesia, as you know too well, such a young market, such a um, social media active uh, marketplace. I'm fascinated as I sit back and watch what the clubs do to try and engage with them. And what about China? Because that was always seen as the hardest nut to crack. It's got a, a different political situation there. There was the old great firewall of China, as people used to talk about as well. Um, so is, it, is that still seen as the hardest nut to crack? Is it still different? I think the thing about China that's fascinating, I mean, having lived in Hong Kong for so long and, and being having been around you know, the, the sort of greater China area for so long, you, what you can't ignore is that, that, that there was not a cultural predisposition to, to, to love football. 
it, it just it wasn't. I don't, you know, as you know, being in Asia, it's, you can't just be broadly stereotypical and, and, and have great brushstrokes when it comes to categorizing Asians. But I think it's fair to say that in certain parts of it, let's say, let's take cricket and, and India, for instance. I mean, that's in that's in people's hearts. Right. That, that, that's and I think you would say that that sport, broadly speaking, is in people's hearts in India. In, in China, I think culturally, it may have been seen as a means to an end in many ways. Um, and in certainly more affluent Chinese societies, Hong Kong, Singapore, that there was always that, well, you're going to be a banker, doctor, lawyer uh, mentality. Sport and showbiz, they're not really proper sensible careers. Well, obviously, that's something that's, that's changed, fortunately, uh, but slowly. Uh, and it's taken a while for, for, for there to be more acceptance. And with that comes money. Uh, and, and that's the problem, really, isn't it? Because if you can't see that there's a career in it, why would you go and do it? And if you've lavished money on an expensive education for a kid, you're going to say, well, you're not going to go off and be a footballer. Um, so I think that's where we you know, culturally have problems. And I think that's where China has had a problem. Then, of course, as you say, there was the firewall. Uh, now, because there is still that um, incredible ability to galvanize an entire country, that kind of post-communist uh, um, regime uh, sporting thing, you know, East Germany and all that. Uh, if a president says, right, this is the new sport and we're going to turn golf courses into football pitches and we're going to coach the coaches and we are going to leap forward, there, there will be an impact. Um, but they're so far behind because I think the Premier League struggled for a little while to make substantial inroads in terms of the broadcast, which I think is usually something that, that, that drives um, uh, the market. Uh, they're, they're, they're a bit behind. Uh, it's going to take a bit of catching up. Everybody had a crack at it with varying degrees of success. Um, and I'm still not convinced that, that, that anybody is really winning. Certainly China's uh, international team performances have got a long way to go. Um, we're looking to engage, um, you know, in a business sense all the time with China because it's such a vast market and there's so much potential there. But um, no, I think there's a long way to go, to be honest. And what about India? I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but you've, you've had the Indian Super League there, which, which seems to be having a a bit of an impact and uh, a lot of clubs, as you said, concentrated on China. And now it seems that India with the, the, the technological changes there in particular seems to be much more of interest. It always surprised me that clubs weren't more interested in India, actually. Yeah. Oh, that, that's the point that you, that you always have to come back to with India. I mean, when I first started commentating and working on football, I would occasionally get footage through of um, East Bengal against Mohan Bagan playing in front of 120,000 at the Salt Lake Stadium. And you would go, wow. Uh, but then you'd sort of see that the rest of the country didn't have that degree of, of support. And as I said earlier on, maybe in Goa, one or two areas. And then when the when the Indian Super League came along, I mean, I think, I mean, IMG and, and, and Reliance um, uh, with their partners, with their commercial partners, uh, really did a fabulous job. They had great support from, from Star Sports, you know, in terms of the way they got the product out there. Um, but I mean, the attendances were just fantastic. And then you saw the, the, the rise of places like Chennai and, and, and other non-traditional football heartlands that suddenly really took off. Um, Okay, you know, Mumbai took a little while to get going, even though it's a good sports city. Delhi in particular took a while. But suddenly you're seeing a degree of sophistication. Um, I think uh, the, the Stephen Constantine and the national team just look at the success they're enjoying. You know, they're going to be involved in the Asian Cup in January, aren't they? So, you know, and, and, and Sunil Chetri and company are just going from victory to victory and really galvanizing the country. But as you said, the clubs took a while. Think about this. Even though China had really no great international success or, or pedigree to speak of, they had trouble attracting 
the world's biggest clubs to go and play football matches there. Whereas India just hasn't had that. And I think it was an infrastructure problem as much as anything. Infrastructure, wariness, for whatever reason, on the part of clubs. The minute that that barrier is broken, the minute that there are facilities um, and infrastructure that, that the clubs say, right, we're happy to go there, we're happy to play in tournaments, we're happy to tour, well, they will get sensational crowds there, they will get incredible commercial support there, and it will explode. So once that happens, then, then India will go places as, as a football nation. Um, I've been working in Indonesia, and I show people videos of the crowds there, and they, they look at it and think, this is, this is incredible. It, 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 it strikes me that Europe, I'll talk, talk about Europe in general, is very patronising towards Asian football, actually. Absolutely. Now, I, I, I've long felt that one. One of the problems to a degree in doing what I, I've done for all these years is that, you know, because I've been the face in many ways of, of Premier League and I'm, I'm, you know, this this white guy and what have you, it's very easy. And it tends to be the Western journalists in Asia who do it. Oh, there's that guy representing all those clubs who come and pillage Asia and patronize us. But it's very frustrating because obviously I've come from a background where I've, I've worked within Asian football as much as I have within uh, European football. And I know what the, the deal is. Uh, one thing that blew me away was I was in Jakarta doing something uh, a couple of years back and this fellow came up and showed me um, his phone and, and played me a clip of these fans going nuts and it looked like an indoor, like a basketball arena or something like that. I reckon somewhere between five and 7,000 fans watching a big screen going crazy. And he said, yeah, we're, this is the Man United Supporters Club. Um, and, and I said, where? And he, I can't remember. It was, so, it was, it was a much, it was, it was, a, it was a, a small... Uh, no, I couldn't tell you which city it was, but I was surprised. I sort of said, right, well, is that the, the, the Indonesian one? He goes, no, 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 no. That's one of 140 different fan clubs around Indonesia. And I said, well, was that a cup final? He goes, no, that is just a regular weekend. And so I'm looking at that thinking to myself, OK, that's European football. Then, of course, as you know, when we go and watch Indonesian domestic football, um, you know, a bit of violence and, and unsavoriness, unsavoriness notwithstanding, it is it is incredible. I don't know if I've seen sport like that anywhere in Asia, to be totally honest with you. And the passion and, and, the, and that sort of tribalism that goes with it. You know, I don't like using that word, but in that sense, it, it's incredible that what, what happens. So, no, I don't think people get it, but I think it's very easy to go, OK, well, those people are going to queue up at the airport. They're going to, you know, wave clappers at us at the game and they're going to spend lots of money on us and then we'll, we'll go away. I think um, I don't mind in a way, that degree of ignorance, because I like Asia having its own football identity and I like Asian crowds supporting their teams. Um, and I also don't have any problem with somebody supporting their team in, a, in Indonesia and as many European clubs or Western clubs as they want, because I, I think that's the nature of football, to be honest. Asian players going to Europe, is that a mark of success? Is that important to growing Asian football per se? And is it a story that you cover? In particular, um, it's not something I chase unnecessarily because I, I I always get a little bit embarrassed. You know, you know when you're that guy from the Australian rights holder and you're based in England, and all you basically do is you have to run round and round every week trying desperately to find a story or trying to somehow shoehorn an Aussie angle into something when it just isn't there. And I've always felt really sorry for that person. So um, yeah, if if there was if there was something that was generally I, what I won't do is I won't get excited about an Asian player going over there if I know they're not going to play. And if I know that, I think it's a myth to say they go there to sell shirts. I mean, uh, Arsenal had a habit of bringing in one or two Japanese players. Um, and, and, you know, they wouldn't have sold shirts un, you know, necessarily. It might have raised a bit of the profile or what have you. But I'd like to think that Arsene Wenger, with his, his roots in Japan, uh, also had an interest in trying to develop football there. 
I, I think if, if a player goes somewhere where they will improve their skills and take it back to their country, that's great. Um, I don't like it when, when Asian players, you know, go somewhere and then find themselves, you know, basically they're all diminished as a footballer. Um, that, that's a waste of time and space. Um, see, the problem we've got, as you and I know, is that as much as there's passion in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia lags quite some way behind um, the uh, East Asia and, and West Asia in terms of, you know, that little golf. You've got the Thais who do their best to close the gap. If they happen to be at that time the strongest team in Southeast Asia. But it, it, there's a long way to catch up, uh, you know, with Japan, Korea, with Saudi, with, with Iran, with whoever's the strongest force at any given time. And I think the only way that will happen is through greater sophistication in terms of the domestic leagues but that somehow probably needs players to come back from overseas with a bit of nous so it's it's a sort of a it's a catch 22 situation Premier League, we talked about the pre-season tournaments, but they, they do a fair amount of work during the season there's fan parties there's events what what sort of stuff goes on that you, that you know about yeah um Okay, well, when the Premier League itself, let, let's go with them first. They, they've launched a thing called Premier League Live, which um, I, I was lucky enough to do the first one. Uh, we were in Mumbai and we, we hung it around, I think, a weekend of matches, the centrepiece of which was um, a Liverpool-Man United game. So we had a huge stage uh, set up in a, in, in, in a big field. Uh, we got 30,000 fans in, in a massive sort of step screen. And I'm on stage with Peter Michael and, and Robbie, basically doing interviews before the game, working the crowd, then you'd have like entertainers on stage. You you have all the clubs coming and they'd have their marquees around. They'd have different interactive stations. There'd be little five-a-side games and things like that. Took it down to Cape Town after that and had a fabulous time down there. They were back in, in India a couple of years back doing it again. So that's a big thing. Manchester United, for instance, do I think as many as three or four um, uh, in, engagements like you know watching viewing parties um around asia in any given season a lot of clubs do that but but united i think lead the way they'll always bring a couple of ambassadors out uh, i think you know, the likes of dwight york and company will come out on a regular basis and, and they would do stuff around it so yeah they do that i think the more of that the merrier because it, it brings a bit of the atmosphere out to asia um and wherever you can do that, I think it's it, it, it's good because, as I said, people just don't get a chance to go there. It's beyond their financial means in most people's cases. And what about La Liga and Bundesliga? Are they similarly active? My sense is both of them have got themselves going to try and catch up that Premier League gap in the last few years. Yeah, you've seen all sorts of methodology there. I mean, uh, I think. Uh, one of the things is competitive kickoff times, and I think both have tried, particularly La Liga, to tweak it. It's tr it's tough, isn't it? You know what Spain's like? It's that sort of late night culture, isn't it? So you know people don't really want to kick off at seven thirty, especially you know they want to have their tapas and the games at ten o'clock. That's it's the late night thing there. So to suddenly find games to um, their kickoff times for, for for the Asian market, that that's that's a difficult sell for the clubs, I think. Um, I think. When, when you talk about the Bundesliga and La Liga, very often, um, yeah, I've got a lot of respect for the guys. They have offices in Asia. They work very hard at what they do. But I think they're also very mindful that the bigger clubs help to drive the agenda. So, for example, you know, if, if Barca and, and Real Madrid work hard, then that La Liga broadly. And I think they have this synergy between the two um, organizations. 
you will find obviously Bayern Munich um, and, and but Borussia Dortmund have done a fabulous job in recent times. They've been very active in the Asian marketplace. They bring out former players, guys like Karl-Heinz Riedler have been really good. He's a really eloquent guy who comes out and very savvy guy too. They do a lot of commercial activation. They get the fans involved wherever they can. We're, we're, we're Fox are uh, the Bundesliga rights holder for, for, for this part of the world. So obviously we work closely with them. Um, when uh, Ancelotti took over at Bayern Munich, he was just, I'm, I'm at the Fox offices now. He popped in one night when they were doing something during the ICC and met some fans here. So they're, they're, they're active. It, you know, it's, it's good to see them pushing as hard as they can. What would you make of the Premier League change vis-a-vis the distribution of rights that recently the big clubs pushed for more of a slice of the cake uh, of the overseas rights? Because that's what's growing and the domestic rights are kind of staying still or slightly shrinking. Does that kind of play into your hands as, as someone who's leading the coverage of the Premier League in a in a major overseas territory? Um, I, I'll deal with that a bit later on. I think first things first, I think that... You know the, the the so-called bigger clubs had been agitating for that for quite some time. If you think about it, you've got foreign ownership, right? And in particular, American ownership. And the American owners in particular will be saying, hang on, what's this collective deal? You know, where we come from, we, we sell the rights in one way, then we sell them off to our, our local, um, you know, rights holder as well. And we basically milk it for all we're worth. We, we, we don't share it around. We don't, you know, buy into this collective ideal. Now, of course, you know, Richard Scudmore, who's still in the position, the executive chairman, he, he consistently said all along that on his watch, he wouldn't allow a, a diminishing of that collective idea, which he felt was at the very heart of what made the Premier League so successful. Uh, but obviously, you know, I think the forces were such that, that, that they, 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 they didn't win the day as such, but they are winning the day. And I think even beyond that, remember, th- those big clubs, and it's understandable this, they're part of a collective in the Premier League, which is fabulously successful but they are fully entitled to to exploit their their own you know um commercial rights as they see fit so i think what they're doing is they're kind of pushing against the collective a little bit and and in a way if if a club is engaging with me as a non-premier league rights holder that's another sign that they are spending the marketplace where technically our, our, our games are shown on one channel but we will do something with another channel and i think that's part of this so um, as much as the Premier League might have wanted, or certain people might have wanted it to remain um, a very democratic, um, you know, 20 club, give or take three every season um, format, I think you'll find that the big guns are calling the shots more and more now. Uh, in particular, where America is concerned. Yeah, to have a little look at that. Sorry, last thing. The, the American ownership plus the emphasis placed on the importance of, of penetration through NBC and the rights deal over there. Awful lot of Premier League attention is paid to America now, including pre-season. Yeah, and that was... My last question, because La Liga recently announced they're going to North America, the 39th game, the Premier League talked about that. And my sense of that was US focused as well. What would a what would a competitive EPL game staged in Southeast Asia do for the market there? Because friendlies are friendlies, but competitive games are very different. They are. Um, the, you know what I like about that Asia Trophy I spoke about earlier on? That that format with three Premier League clubs and a local side playing has produced uh, the most competitive, um, uh, friendly football I've ever seen. Because when you get two Premier League clubs going at it with Premier League referees and a full stadium and cameras around, they don't hold back. So I, I think that format is as close as we've been able to get to a so-called 39th game. I think the 39th game became a bit of a thing. I don't think it was fully understood. I don't think the idea was fully developed before it got leaked. 
And I think there are an awful lot of people taking political positions and journalists having a go at it without fully understanding what perhaps the, the embryonic thinking was behind it. I don't think it's a daft idea. And I think what we're seeing now is vindication that there is something uh, in it. The other thing I'd say, all these things we've spoken about, which about, you know, like uh, infrastructure, stadia, sophistication of broadcast networks, that's why America is, is the focus. Because these leagues and these clubs say it's there, it's ready-made. You know, whether it's climate, whether it's facilities, whether it's uh, uh, all we need now is to develop the audience. There's a sophisticated um, uh, monetization um, revenue stream there. If you tap into it, if you get people watching. And I think perhaps it's just a little easier in some ways, not least um, geographically, time wise, than, than, than doing the same sort of thing in, in, in Southeast Asia or the Far East. I'll just add one more then. If you were in charge of the Premier League, just give us a couple of things that you would do to grow the appeal of the league in Southeast Asia? Mm. Um, I think what I would do is, I think I'd, I'd, do away, I'd do away with Saturday night games and Friday night kickoffs. I'll tell you that, that they, those are a bit painful. Um, <laughs> I think the early kickoffs work. I think, you know, there, there are a few things finer than being able to watch a game at 7.30 p.m. in the evening, you know, or even 8 o'clock or whatever it may be. It, 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 we are so privileged. It is perfect. The one thing America doesn't have going for it is that you've got to get up at the crack of dawn and you don't particularly fancy having a beer unless you're that way inclined at eight o'clock in the morning watching your game. So what we have going for us is the time um, of the kickoffs. And I think that is fabulous. And I would do everything I could to, to, to make the start of that. I would engage with the marketplace by coming out and, and, and encouraging the clubs to, and even as the Premier League itself, coming out here on a regular basis and bringing people out. Asia is an audience that I'll give you one quick, before I go, one quick thing. Um, we used to work with a lot of Asian licensees, broadcasters, and occasionally we'd have someone come over from Hong Kong. We'd say to them, right, we could line you up an interview with so-and-so and so-and-so. Now, they might not be the biggest name at the club. And then before we could finish, they'd say, no, no, we don't want that. We want to go and stand outside Old Trafford just to show we are here. Because that's what people here want the most. They want that engagement. So uh, I think what they should do is they should bend over backwards to allow Asian broadcasters to get as close to the action uh, as they can and also access the players, the superstars. This is still a place where, whether it's pop music or sport, uh, idols are worshipped. And I think everything you can do to increase access to them, either in the UK or by getting them out to Asia, uh, would just would be massive. If once or twice a season you had a, some kind of a tour or visit by the biggest, most high-profile players uh, in the Premier League, it would it would just take it to another level. John Dykes, thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. Please follow at Sports Content Strategy on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, it's Sports Content SP. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog and sign up for his newsletter at MrRichardClark.com. 